Surprise, it's me again. Um, we did a little swap a and we decided you need a double dose. Like, uh, it'll be me again in two weeks, also. So, anyhow. Thanks, Luba. Okay. Anyways, um, I used to know. Oh, by the way, some of you, we heard, were feeling a little beaten down by the, by the violence and bloodshed and uh, gore of the David story. We're sorry to say we cannot change David's life, but today I threw in a little pretend happy ending, which I'll read to you, but it's pretend. So anyways, but sorry about the gore, the gloom, and doom. Um, the encouraging side is when you feel bad about your life, you can think, well, at least everybody's not dropping dead right next to me and killing each other. So, and, and when we get to David's kids, you'll feel really good about your parenting because no matter how your kids turned out, they're probably not trying to murder each other, you know? So, so look at the bright side of David's bad stories. Okay. Or succeeding. Or succeeding, yes. Your kids may try to kill each other, but so far, hopefully, none of them have, I'm hoping. Um, okay, 2 Samuel 5 and 6. I used to know this couple at our old church, and uh, the wife told me, she said that her husband was the first person who ever showed interest in her in college, and so she married him, right? And, um, and it didn't sound very romantic either. She said he, would come, he was kind of the engineering nerdy kind, and he would come by and, you know, and, and then he'd say, well, I gotta go work on a problem set, and then he'd leave, and, um, and then next thing you knew, they were engaged. So this was this couple. Um, and in the years that passed, she gradually grew and changed, and one of the things she found as she kind of became the person she was becoming was that she thought her husband had anger issues. Um, he never beat her, but she sometimes felt threatened when his temper showed. Um, if he yelled or if he stomped around, she felt threatened. And, you know, I tried to be really patient listening to these stories, but because I myself am a bad-tempered person, and I do my share of yelling and stomping. Um, and I have, you know, ask my kids, they'll give you the tour. Here's the light switch you broke when you hit it so hard. And we used to have a pasta spoon, but then you broke it on the side of the pot. So my kids can give the full tour. Um, so, so I found myself often feeling pity for her husband. Um, so especially because she turned out to be kind of a very fragile and very sort of high-maintenance person, and she had to talk everything out 800 times, and I don't know if you got my idea from Scott, I am not a talk-it-out-800-times kind of person. I'm just like, oh, do I have to talk about it again, right? So, so anyway, this couple, they went to all kinds of counseling, and they had their ups and downs, and they separated for a while, and they got back together, and then they separated for a while, and they got back together. And I remember she told me that at one point, finally her husband just kind of collapsed on the bed and said, I don't know what to do. I'm just tired of all the fighting. I just want to love you. And I thought, oh, this poor man. Um, and she was just sort of annoyed, right, that he just wanted to fall on the bed and say, I just want to love you. But I thought a lot of women would be very happy to hear that from their husband. So anyways. Where am I going with that story? Nowhere, really. But on a small scale, this is what happens at the opening to chapter 5, 
right? You think you guys are sick of war? At least we just have to read about it, right? The Israelites are sick of war. They are sick of it. Um, they're tired of the war. They're tired of the bloodshed. They're tired of the vengeance. So they all come to David, all those other tribes. Remember, he was just kind of ruling over Judah at this point. They all come to David of their own accord and submit to him, right? They suddenly say, oh, you know, David, it turned out we remembered we're all related, you know, way back when. We're all related. And, um, and we remember that you used to serve Saul in the beginning, and so now we're going to like you. Okay. And strangely enough, when I was packing up everything, including fried rice, I forgot my Bible again. So I'm going to do long-distance reading. Okay. This is 2 Samuel in chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Okay, so think about it. From the time that Samuel, the priest, told David he would be king, until the time David actually became king in Saul's place was 15 years. And David is 30 at this point, so it was half his entire life, right? And, you know, compared to Abraham and Sarah waiting for a kid, you know, it was a blink of an eye, right? It wasn't that long. But in dog years, think about it. If you were David's dog, it was 105 years, right? This took a long time. And I bet sometimes waiting for God to fulfill his promises David probably felt like dog years, right? He's like, when? When? Half my life. Okay? So, but it has finally happened. He is king of all Israel. And so we think, yay! Reign happily ever after. End of story right off into the sunset. But, you know, to paraphrase Hamilton, winning is easy, young man. Governing is harder. So this is what David finds. You think, yay! He's king! Yay! And then it just keeps on coming, right? So we're ready for the weekly steamroller, right, ladies? Okay, so first David kicks off with more violence and bloodshed, right? Because he needs a new capital, and he decides, Jerusalem, there's people living there, but whatever, right? So here's my little map of Israel. I bet you can't read any of those names. So I put a little yellow oval around Jerusalem so you can see where it's located, right? So Judah is kind of the territory below. If you look at the red arrow, the red arrow is pointing to heaven, right? Where, where David had headquartered himself. So you can see he thinks, well, if I'm going to rule the whole enchilada, I need to move my capital a little more north. Otherwise, it just looks like I only care about my people, right? And yeah, there's people living there, but we'll take care of that. Okay, so why Jerusalem? It's neutral territory, right? Because it doesn't belong to the northern tribes and it doesn't belong to Judah. So like, that's one advantage of attacking random people, right? Is that you're not attacking any tribe or taking over any tribe. Um, it's kind of halfway-ish, right? Um, it belonged to the Jebusites at the time. I think about the U.S. Capitol when they were trying to find a place to put it, right? They, if you give it to a particular state, that state feels like, yeah, we're the seat of power, yeah, right? So they made the same choice. They said, okay, we're going to pick a place kind of in the middle of what was then the United States. We're going to pick a place that's kind of in the middle, and it will not belong to any state. It will be an entity unto itself. So this is what David was thinking 
with Jerusalem. It straddled the line, it didn't belong to any particular tribe, and it was its own thing. So, um, so yay, right? And he succeeds in taking over the city, um, and the Jebusites, they do some trash talking, right? I don't know why, right? This guy has a history of injury, but they do some trash talking. They're like, you will never get in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, right? And David kept growing stronger for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him, and that was sort of the end of the Jebusites. So David establishes his base at Jerusalem, and he starts building his palace, and he starts expanding his family, he adds some more concubines onto the pile, right? A few more wives. And, and they kind of truncate the timeline, right? Because they mention like Bathsheba and Solomon and all that business, and we know they come a little late. More wives, more children, more, um, more women in general, because if your life isn't complicated, adding all those things really helps. Right? <laughs> okay, so the, the Philistines, they catch wind of all this flourishing. Like, it sounds like he's flourishing, right? That guy's flourishing. This guy used to be our ally, and he fought on our side against Saul, king of Israel, and he has gotten too big for his britches, right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up in search of David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold, the fortress, right? Now, the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, right? The Lord breaks out. Um, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Okay, so, <clears throat> you know... Everyone brought their little uh, god pieces into battle with them, right? To go with them into battle. And so the Philistines, they get whipped here. They make a stand, they get whipped, and this time it's the Israelites who capture the Philistine idols. Um, and it says, he whips them all the way from Geba to Gezer, right? Six ways to Sunday, David whips those Philistines. So it's very clear which side he's on now, right? It's like, I was just fooling you, right? I am really for my people. Okay, and Israel was free of them. You remember how long they have been under the Philistine foot? Um, remember back to Judges, Gideon trying to help against the Philistines? The Israelites have been under the Philistine oppression for a long, long time, and finally they are free. And, and no wonder everyone thought, yeah, glory days, we, they're gone. We finally got rid of them. And, which brings us uh, to chapter 6, because of course you can't, be happy for very long in the Bible. So chapter 6 is trouble in paradise, right? So chapter 5 ends with this glorious victory, free at last, right? Now it's time for the ticker tape parade and big victory bashes, and what better way to celebrate, thinks David, than to bring the ark to the new capital city. Woohoo, right? Um, we remember way back when, we're going to talk about, when it was captured by the Philistines in battle. Remember, the Israelites lost the battle, and the Philistines captured the ark, and now we got their idols, right? So we're going to bring our ark back to the city. And um, that will make Jerusalem not only the political capital, but it will also be the religious and spiritual capital of all Israel if the ark would be housed there. So if you remember the ark history, as I was saying, way back in 
1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines captured the ark. And you remember they bring the news back to Eli, who was Samuel the priest's priest, his mentor, right? They bring him back the news and he like falls over dead. He's just so horrified that this has happened to Israel. The ark has been um, captured. And you remember the Philistines, they take the ark. Like, Yay, we got the ark. They take it to their temple. And there's that funny story about they keep coming in in the morning and the god Dagon has fallen on his face in front of the ark. They're like, was that odd? And they prop him back up and they come back in the next day and he's fallen on his face in front of the ark. Right? <clears throat> so that's what happened when the Philistines had it. And then the Philistines, it said, got sick with the plague in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So they started feeling sick. And so they said, oh, we don't like this ark thing. Right? So then in chapter 6, they said, send it back to Israel. Well, just remember, they hook it up to the milk cows, and they're like, just, just go. Just get out of here, right? And the milk cows head off in the direction of Israel and stop at the first town there, um, Beth Shemesh. And remember, everyone at Beth Shemesh was like, woohoo, the ark is back, the ark is back. And then, of course, some of the folks said, I wonder what's inside of it, right? And remember, they open it up, and they, and that's the end of the guys. And then they say, um, and it said, um, the, man, the Lord struck at the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the Ark of the Lord, just like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember? <laughs> Melting waxy face? Yeah. He struck down 70 men among the people and 50,000 men. It's like, what? What does that even mean? But 70 men among the people and 50,000 just other general men. So, anyways, I'm not sure how many, but you'd have to stuff a lot of faces looking into that Ark, but it must have been like some kind of... Um, Contagious disease, right? That these guys, instead of waxy face melting, they had like, oh, I've got some kind of contagious disease. And then, of course, not knowing germ theory, they ran out and spread it everywhere. So anyway, Beth Shemesh freaks out, naturally. And they say, oh, we don't actually want the art here after all. And so they say, hey, curious germ, we got a present for you, right? Come get the dang art, right? So these brave people say, yes, that's our, the art. We'll come get the art. But, you know, they're not that brave. They're like, hey, Abinadab, who lives on a hill, how about if we stash it at your house? He's like, okay, right? I mean, after what the art had recently done and been through, you know, Abinadab, that was pretty brave of him to say, okay, I've got like a barn out there. You can park it in there, right? Okay, so here we are decades later. It stays in there 20 years, decades later. Um, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, still on the hill after 20 years. <laughs> and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Okay, so we have this big, big, big party, right? Yay, the ark, the ark, the ark, right? And then, you know, we have truly an unhappy passage. So, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nathan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smoked him there, because he put forth his hand to the ark, and he died there. If you're acting surprised, that means you didn't do the reading. I'm just kidding. Um, um, 
Uh, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, right? Way to cast a blight on our celebratory day, Uzzah. Here's, here's a little painting. You can see um, that's Uzzah tumbling away after he's been smitten. And you can see everybody so happy, so happy today. and try to steady the ark. Okay, so a couple thoughts I had about because this is a horrible passage. We don't, if we could write our own Bible, we would delete stuff like this, right? Like, what? Um, okay, so some thoughts I had. Now, it says Uzzah and Ahio are Abinadab's sons, right? And they're accompanying the ark out of their dad's house. So what that tells me is that they are familiar with the ark's story, right? If they ever add, ask, Dad, what's that thing in the barn? Dad could tell them. The thing in the barn is the Ark of the Lord, and be very careful around it, because here's what happened at the last town, right? We've had it for 20 years. We've treated it right. There has been no breakout. The Lord's holiness, right? Stay away from the Lord. So they know the story. They know the story. They know the power symbolized by that Ark. Okay, Uzzah knows what happened to the Philistines. He knows why they got rid of it. He knows why the town of Beth Shemesh got rid of it. He knows there is power, right? God's power. Um, so you think, well, if Uzzah had let the ark crash to the ground, would that have been better, right? The oxen stumble, Uzzah's like, uh-oh, and then, right? Who would have been mad at him then? Probably all the people. Like, didn't you see it was tipping over? Why didn't you catch it? You let the Lord fall on the ground, right? So wouldn't he have been accused of not caring about God's dignity if he let the stupid thing tumble down? Okay, so Uzzah, he's in a tough spot. you got to feel for that guy. Okay, so some more thoughts. One is that, um, why was Uzzah that? In Old Testament times, calamities and blessings were often attributed to God, right? If things were going gangbusters, it was because God was smiling on you. If things were going down the tubes, it was because you had done something wrong, okay? And only, it's very straightforward causality, right? So remember Job's friends come to him, it's like, oh, all your kids died, you've got some kind of skin disease, you must have been a bad, bad boy, right? Clearly, because that's what happens. If bad happens to you, because you are a bad, bad boy. Right? So this causality you find all throughout the Bible, in, um, all throughout the Old Testament, right? But it is occasionally questioned. And um, the questioning is very powerful. I, here's just a smattering of places where it's questioned. In Ecclesiastes, in Psalms, in Jeremiah, in Malachi. Like, well, if this is the way it works, right? Do bad, get, get blasted. Do good, get blessed. Then why do there seem to be some really bad people who seem to be blessed, right? And why do there seem to be some good people who seem to get blasted, right? So, it begins to be questioned, this viewpoint. But we see it here, right? If Uzzah straightens the ark, and if Uzzah already had a heart condition or whatever, and he dropped dead, in their time, they're like, oh, oh, the Lord smote you, right? The Lord smote Uzzah, right? But there's already some questioning. When you get to New Testament times, the writers, you notice, are hesitant to make, the, to make God the agent of the zapping. Think of, um, they're more cautious with the causality. Think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, 
right? They sell the land. They come and they say, hey, disciples, here's some money we got from selling the land. And they're like, hey, wasn't that land worth more than that? Right? Ananias dies, right? Now, hmm, he lied to the Lord. Look what happened. And then Sapphira comes in and is like, oh, yeah, here's some money we got. And bleh, right? And she dies too. But it does not say, unlike in Old Testament passages, it may be implied, right? Ooh, they lied to the Lord and something terrible happened. It is implied, but there is no explicit sentence, right? There is no, the Lord smote Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and then look at uh, Jesus himself, right? They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you know that Tower of Siloam that collapsed on all those people? It's because they were bad boys, wasn't it, right? That Tower of Siloam is in Luke chapter 13. And he says, um, he says, hey, you know those 18 people who died when the towers in Siloam collapsed on them? Do you think they were any more evil than everyone else in Jerusalem who did not get crushed? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus says, actually, no, it wasn't their behavior. And they weren't any worse than the rest of you, <laughs> right? Death is the end of us all, Jesus says. And, and the key is, what are you going to do before you're dead so that when you are crushed by towers in Siloam, it's not the end of the story, right? So these are all just, hello, these are all just some thoughts. Okay, all of which is to say, take this passage with a teeny grain of salt. But suppose God really did get ticked at Uzzah for laying hands on the ark. Why would that be? What would that demonstrate if God really was angered? And he might have been angered and not smitten him, but just thought, oh, I'm angry, and then Uzzah fell down dead, and everybody said, oh, no, it's motive, right? I think it would show a couple things. That God's holiness is not something predictable, it's not controllable, it's not ownable, right? Um, God's holiness, if his presence might coincide with human purposes, but ultimately it's God calling the shots. You know, David is thinking, what would crown this day? Bringing the ark to Jerusalem, right? Yeah! And then everything's together in one place, and I am master of all, right? And this is the way of God reminding the people that actually, you know what? You don't know me, right? You're not the boss of me. I am something so outside your understanding that don't even think that you can put me here, put me there, stash me here, stash me there, straighten me up, dust me off, right? That's not how I work, right? I am God Almighty. So David may be a man after God's own heart, and God may choose him and give him military victory, but that does not make God in any way answerable to David or David's timeline or David's purposes, right? Okay, second thing it might show is that respecting God's holiness and worshiping him it's not the same thing as maintaining dignified appearances. So respecting God's holiness, worshiping him, that is not equal to this maintaining dignified appearances. We're going to come back to this because this is where the chapter ends with this same point, right? Worship and God's holiness have nothing to do with our dignity or God's appearance. Okay, so even if A didn't cause B, Uzzah's death is still this terrible omen, right? Um, in the midst of all this celebrating, and David, understandably, he freaks out. He freaks out. He's like, cancel, cancel, cancel. Um, 
never mind bringing the ark all the way back to Jerusalem, um, send it to Obed-Edom's house, right? And Obed-Edom was a Gittite, it tells us. He was a foreigner, right? So I'm sure he was shaking in his boots. I mean, do you want this thing in your garage? I'm sure Obed-Edom is shaking in his boots. It's a replay of Beth Shemesh freaking out after the people encounter God's holiness and die. And then they send the ark to Abinadab's house on the hill, right? So it goes to Obed-Edom the Gittite, who I'm sure gave it a wide berth around his house. Three months go by, and David hears that, oh, you know what? Not only is Obed-Edom still alive, um, but he, he, you know, he's doing really well. He's been blessed. So then David says, oh, all right, maybe we'll try again. You know, maybe we'll try again to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And this time we're going to do so, and we're going to acknowledge God's holiness and demonstrate that worshiping God is not about religious dignity. Okay, here we go. Chapter 6, verse, verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Okay. Okay, and then we get to the sad Michael story, right? Um, you remember Michael? We haven't seen her for a while. Well, we did see her briefly. Um, the Michael story is a very sad one, I think. Um, here is, remember, she was the princess. She was the daughter of Saul, and she got to marry the golden boy. And you remember, she loved him. She loved him so much that she helped him escape from her own father, you remember? And she, um, she lied to her own father about, oh, you know, he said he was going to kill me, so I had to let him go, right? She loved this guy. Um, and then, after years of separation, Davis, David had to go into hiding, and she gets shuffled off onto this other man, right? And Saul did it to spite David. He's like, you know what? All right, you're going you're gonna to rebel against me, and people are going to go follow you, and I'm going to give your wife to somebody else. And, um, but it wasn't all bad. So clearly, uh, you know, she, she looks bad in this scene. But clearly there must have been something very winning about her. Because her second husband is a good man who loves her. And he doesn't have the exalted status to keep her. And so when the powers that be say, all right, David says, I want her back. Right? So they go and they fetch Michael. And remember poor Paltiel, he follows crying. He's like, they're taking my wife and poor Michael, right? She has to leave this guy. And maybe she thought, oh, well, you know, I, maybe David, you know, carried a torch for me this whole time. Maybe he wants me back because he missed me, you know, all these years, maybe. She comes back, what does she find? No, actually, he didn't miss you at all, right? He's taken other wives. He's taken concubines, right? Not just other wives. I mean, if you can marry other women, why do you need concubines on top of why, I just don't understand. Why do men need so many women, right? So, and he only seems to have wanted her back on principle, right? Because she was mine, and so therefore she should not be taken from me. Nobody takes the king's wife from him. So of course she is bitter, right? You know, her first love forgot all about her, 
takes her away from the man who really loves her and would happily spend the rest of his life with her, just so she can be there and be like first wife, right? First wife, there you go. See, I still have my princess. Um, so of course she's bitter and snippy, and there is David out there, barely clothed in the linen ephod and dancing like an idiot, right? The last window scene she shared with him was romantic and exciting, you know? David is escaping out of the window while she covers him in chapter 19. But this window scene demonstrates the emotional distance between them. Okay. And David returned to bless his household. This is after all his dancing and stuff. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Okay, I hate this scene. I hate it. If I could have written the Bible, you know, I would have taken out some of the gore and violence for you ladies. Um, if I could have written the Bible, I, my ending to their story would have gone like this. <clears throat> In all his years of exile and hiding, David never forgot his first love, Michael. Why had he never told her how much he loved her? Remember, everyone's always like, I love you, David, and he never says anything. What happened to those songs he wrote her? Right? There's not a single one in songs. Um, he took some girlfriends while they were apart, but he never forgot her. Right? And as soon as he had the power, he sent for her. He remembered how she had loved him. He, he wouldn't blame her second husband for loving her, too. How could the man their reunion was the final crown to his victory, and the child they had together united the house of David and the house of Saul and brought peace and union to all Israel. That's what I would do. I know, it's like better, right? Um, but sadly, that is not the way it went. And David's sexual excesses lead instead to infighting and, uh, and division. So yeah. Here, here's a, a painting. Somebody actually painted Michael looking out the window. But the thing is, you can't even see David acting like a fool because the, the focus is on Michael. But you can see the maidservants are like, oh my, look at the king, look at the king, right? Which is probably annoying to her. Okay, so Michael speaks scathingly to her husband. under your ephod, right? And you can hear the hurt and the jealousy in Michael's voice. So the, the, um, the point will be lost. I'll just make it in the interest of time. Oh, we're good. Okay, so what prevent, Michael is prevented from entering into worship. This is a big moment for all of Israel, right? Big moment of celebration. But Michael is prevented from entering in because of her baggage. Sometimes our baggage prevents us from worshiping God, right? Sometimes we are carrying bitterness. We are carrying hurts. 
We are carrying jealousies, and it prevents us from worshiping God. Michael's baggage prevents her from entering into worship. And David retaliates. He does it truthfully, but not very kindly. David is not very kind here. He says, well, you know what? I was worshiping God. And that whole ark incident, I know that worshiping God is not about dignity and keeping our dignity. It's not about how you look. It's not about how you dress. It's not about how you behave. It's not about you at all. It's about what God deserves, what we lay at his feet. And David said, you know, we did, we, we, I laid my dignity at his feet. I laid pride at his feet. Um, we were just worshiping and not caring what people thought. And if we're busy looking around and remarking on other people's worship, have you ever found yourself doing that in worship? I have. You know, like, oh, look at that person raise their hand, right? Oh, look at that person kind of dancing a lot, right? Oh, look at that person. Oh, that person wasn't singing, but now they're singing. Right? How much time do you spend in worship actually watching other worshipers instead of worshiping? I am guilty of that. Um, but that's not the point of worship, right? The point of worship is recognizing God's holiness. Uh, I think I have slides. I do. Worship 101, right? It's not about us. It's about him, right? And David is saying it's not about whether I was being dignified or undignified. It was about God. It was about God. Um, and it's about what God deserves, what we lay at his feet. When we lay our pride, when we lay our dignity, when we lay down our worries about what other people think of us, it's because it's, God deserves everything, right? He deserves it all from us. Okay. And then finally, uh, yeah, whole heart, pride, dignity. And then it's not about them, right? Well, the slave girls were watching you, right? It's not about them. It's about him, right? It's not about worrying other people watching me while I worship? How do I look while I'm worshiping? Should I put my arms up here or just here or just here? Or should I just keep them on my side? I don't know. Should I clap when there's clap? It's not about us. It's not about them. It's about him, right? So Michael's baggage prevents her from entering into worship. And then secondly, Michael's baggage prevents her from fellowship, right? She is separated from God because of her baggage. And then she is separated from David. So it says Michael had no children. She had no children. And was it because David never went near her? We don't know, right? Maybe she wasn't fertile in the first place since um, she didn't have any children with Paltiel either, right? Or did she have children with Paltiel but she had to leave them behind too and the Bible doesn't mention them? We don't know. But the implication is that David did not go near her again, which only irritates me more because then he should have left her with the guy who loved her, right? It's like, she's not doing you any good. You made your point. She's not worshiping God like you'd like her to. So why don't you let her go be happier? Okay? But of course, if he had, then she might have had a child, and then there would have been a rival to the throne. So really, politics, right? Uh, okay. So the big celebration ends on a sour note, but our story does not have to. Did I make a slide? No. Hmm. Our story doesn't have to. You know, um, it says that David gave out to all the people a loaf of bread, a cake made in a pan, which is kind of funny. It's like, I'm going to give you a cake made in a pan. Thank you, sire. Um, and a raisin cake, okay, presumably not made in a pan. Otherwise, it would have been two cakes made in pans, right? But today we can celebrate, we can share our loaf of bread, our cake made in a pan, our raisin cake with Eastside Academy, right? Because we have been reconciled to God's holiness, 
we have been reconciled despite our unworthiness, right? Hebrews 4.16 says, because of Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We don't have to go into worship fearing that anyone is going to be smitten by the Lord, right, for worshiping improperly. That is not a fear we have to have. Because Hebrews says, in Jesus, you have been made proper. And God's holiness has been made safe for you because you have been made holy in me. This is miraculous, right? All these things that happened to these poor people, looking in the ark, we do not have to be afraid of because of Jesus. Okay. La, 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 la. And in gratitude, that means we can join David in dancing before God and not worrying about ourselves and not worrying about what other people think of us because it's not about us, right? It's about him. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Sometimes your stories are hard. Sometimes we don't understand them. Lord, we confess that we, we think we would just love happy endings where everything turns out rosy. But Lord, help us to learn what we can learn from the hardships that people in the Bible go through, Lord. Um, we pray like Michal, Lord, if we are carrying baggage that prevents us from worshiping you with our whole hearts, Lord, that you would reveal that to us, that you would help us be free of that baggage, Lord, that we might be free to worship you with everything we have, Lord, not worrying about what other people think and not worrying about them, Lord, that we might just worship you with our whole hearts, Father. We pray that we would release that baggage and it would, we could draw close to you and draw close to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>